Thank you for listening to a sermon from Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Kenmore, New York. Our senior pastor is Justin Olivetti. To reach Knox Church, please email us at office at knoxepc.com or call us at 716-873-2423. To request prayer, email us at prayerchain at knoxepc.com. Now, let's listen. Can you stay standing and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. It's located on page 556 in your pew Bibles. Psalm 51. As we continue our series on learning to love the Psalms, I created a list of the 30 Psalms I think everybody should know and should study. And this one, uh, I think, was on everybody's list. This is a definite one we should all know. uh, Let's read it together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with the hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May God bless this reading of his word today. Please have a seat. Is there anything harder than having to say, I'm sorry, when you did something wrong? Oh, we hate eating those words. There's a note that, that's been going around the internet. I read this. It was a note left on a car after another car hit it. And the owner came back to read this note. And it said, hello, my name is Jack. I accidentally hit your car, but somebody saw me. So right now I'm pretending to write down my details. Sorry, Jack. That's not a great apology, is it? A little bit better would be the person who actually took out an ad in the local newspaper that read, to the driver who beeped at me when, for going out of turn on a four-way stop at Thursday at 6 p.m., 
I was wrong. You were right. I'm sorry. But I think the best apology I've seen was from a little schoolgirl who actually wrote a letter to the Yosemite Park Rangers. And in it, she apologized for taking two sticks out of the park when her class was warned not to remove anything. Not only did she apologize, but she taped the sticks in the letter and she asked the rangers to put the sticks back in nature. And that's a good apology. That's a heartfelt. So if it's a fender bender or a four-way stop mistake or maybe removing two sticks from a park when you shouldn't, there are clear ways to apologize. But how do we say sorry to a holy and perfect God when you do something wrong to him? How do you say sorry? What's the right way? Do you take out an ad? Do you write a short note? How do we say sorry to the Lord when we've sinned? How do we do it the right way? For that, we're going to have to take a lesson, I think, today from King David, who left us perhaps the greatest example of apologizing to God in Psalm 51. This is right here, your template of how to say sorry to God. So let's look at it today. Now, many of us know the story of what happened here. There's a little introductory paragraph there above this psalm. But as a quick refresher, what happened here was not David's finest hour. This is not usually put on the flannel graph in Sunday school when he's slaying Goliath and all that. This is this, is this low point in his kingdom. In 2 Samuel, we read about how David, he was a married man. He was overcome with lust for a woman he saw and he had an affair with and he got pregnant. And then to cover that, he, he went to all these lengths to cover up his sin and his transgression. And eventually he arranged to murder this woman's husband and marry her. And what was even worse than that was the fact that David did not show any signs of remorse for what he did until God sent the prophet Nathan to call David out. You remember that famous parable that Nathan tells and eventually strickens uh, David's heart. Now, most pastors will tell you that the best part of our job is obviously when we have to go up to somebody and confront them about their sin. People love, love it when you do that, right? It's just, I mean, we live for those days, and I get to go up to you and say, listen, what you are doing is wrong, and you need to cut it out. You are sinning against God. And generally, when you confront people like that, uh, there, there are pretty typical responses. Um, people will get very angry at you. People will deny it, they'll downplay it, or they'll turn around, they'll stomp right out of there. So why do pastors do it in the first place? We do it because sometimes, sometimes you get through to that person and they realize you're not doing it because you hate them. You're doing it because you love them and you want to lead them back to restore them to a proper relationship with God. That they've gotten off the track and out of your love for them, you're gently steering them back. So keep that in mind for the day that I come to you and talk to you about that. That's not uh, me enjoying that experience. It's me wanting to get through to you in the hopes that you will respond with true remorse, a true desire to restore your relationship with God. And to his credit, that's exactly what David does when Nathan confronts him. He could have gotten angry. He could have said, ah, like all the other kings of Israel, when prophets came up to them and said, get out of here. Cards cast this prophet out. Instead, David falls off his throne. He's crying. He's like, 
what have I done? And it's not just the kind of sorry that you see with kids and some adults sometimes. when They're sorry that they got caught, right? But it's not like our true remorse for what they did. They just wish that nobody had actually found out what they did wrong. That's not the kind of sorry that David has here. It's like, not, oh, I wish nobody had seen that. Instead, he is deeply sorry that he has sinned against the Lord he loves. God, I love you so much. And what did I do? What did I do to you? He suddenly sees himself, not through his own eyes, but he sees himself through God's eyes. And he's greatly offended by what he did. Now, we're really good at get, about getting offended by what other people did. When's the last time you got offended at something you did? It's so offended that you just had to fall to your knees and apologize because you know above uh, sinning against yourself and sinning against others, ultimately, you're sinning against God. To say sorry to God, David doesn't just write God a short note or take 10 seconds during the Knox prayer of confession to quickly list all those things he did was wrong. Not that that's bad. But the first thing he does here in Psalm 51 to say sorry to God was to completely and unreservedly throw himself on the mercy of God. You don't see any of him explaining himself away to God. Well, God, you know, you know come on, this, this is my excuse. First thing he did is say, Lord, I throw myself on your mercy. I'm sorry. And that shows us how much David knows his Lord. He's a, he has a heart for God. He knows the Lord. He knows he's not owed forgiveness. He doesn't demand, say, God, you owe me like three good favors here. This is one, you know, forgive this sin right now. He says, God, you owe me nothing. But I know you have great compassion, great mercy, and great love. And so right now, right here, I'm just throwing myself on that. That's all I can do. David wasn't doing this to get out of the consequences of his sin, by the way. Those consequences would stay with him. He would still have to suffer a, a, a house that would never be free of conflict for the rest of his life. That was one of the consequences of his sin. He would lose his unborn son because of his sin. These are deep consequences. But instead, he's saying, sorry, because he knows it's far more important to have the, the guilt removed from his heart. And only God's mercy and grace would do that. And the key to do, getting that is to being humble. When we approach God so often, when we come to him to be forgiven, it's kind of reluctant. Sometimes we're a little annoyed that we have to do this. And we go, oh, fine, I'm going to rattle off a bunch of sins like it's God's chore list to do. God, I need you to forgive this and this and this and, yeah, some other things. And that's, that's what you need. Or sometimes we might even take that forgiveness for granted. We might say, well, God, you know, I know I'm once saved, always saved, and you've forgiven everything I've ever done and everything I ever will do, so I don't need to ask that forgiveness ever again, so I'm just going to kind of go on with my life. But instead, we need to take the time to remind ourselves, as David did, that God owes you nothing. God doesn't owe you that forgiveness. But it is by his mercy that you have access to the forgiveness that he is offering to you. By his mercy. Get that better perspective. As we pray, as David did, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love.
Saying sorry, that's a hard thing. Now at home, I'm kind of known, I have this reputation for being known as the guy who goes around the house. It's a a dad thing. I think it's a dad thing. But I, I like to complain a lot about how nobody else picks up the house except for me. Now, that's not true. I, I know it's not true, because other people do clean in the house, but uh, complaining makes me feel better when I'm picking up kids' toys for the millionth time or scrubbing marks off the wall or fixing yet another thing that accidentally got broken. Whoops! Dad! And then they hand me broken things, and they're like, fix it. Or dealing with the delightful surprises that our cat leaves here and there. And I'm always like, I'm the only person who goes around the house. I'm the only person cleaning up at the end of the day. And it's not true, but I have learned a lot about cleaning over the years. I've learned a lot about how there is a right way and a wrong way to clean. If you're tackling a room, and you want to make that room clean with as little effort as possible, you want to do a surface-level cleaning, it's all about appearances, right? You're just rearranging everything so that people don't see the worst stuff. You're taking a whole bunch of arm. I mean, these kids know it. They, they already told you out. They throw it in the closet. You, you sweep it under a rug. You do whatever you can to just get it so that if somebody came in, the Pope, for whatever reason, came into my house, had to use the bathroom, and he just gave a glance at my room, you know, okay, that's clean. But it's not real, true cleaning. Um, That's the wrong method, by the way. Just saying that for any family members who might be out there. That's not how we clean rooms. The right way to clean a room is to deep clean everything. And that takes effort. That takes work. That means whether or not it's visible by people who might be looking in, you move things and you dust under things and you rearrange things and you're not doing it for other people to look at. You're doing it to get it clean. You're doing it to get all the dust and all the germs and all the dirt out of there to make that room as spotless as possible. So when we're apologizing to God, it's not enough to give our conscience a surface-level cleaning. It's not enough to toss off a quick sorry and think that that covers everything. We have to get down. We have to get deep. We have to really tackle the root of our sin, whether or not other people can see it when they look at our lives. Because we know it's there. We know it's under the surface. We need to be honest about who we are. And in verse 3, when we're looking at I know you're thinking we're only in verse 3 yet. It's okay. In verse 3, We see that David sees that too. He's honest about who he is. And he's asking for a deep cleaning. He says this, I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. And he's not playing the role of the ignorant fool here who hand waves away his sins. He downplays it by saying, well, God, everybody makes mistakes and we're only human. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't care how other people see his sin. He just knows God sees it. And said he's absolutely crushed that he's done evil against God. And he he shows, you get the sense when you read Psalm 51, that he has this profound understanding of how filthy and disgusting his sin is to God. It's a serious thing, his sin. It's not a lighthearted factor of his life. And David looked out over his whole life, and instead of like maybe putting his resume resume on display here, boasting about his military victories, his triumph over Goliath, his many great songs that he's written, 
his rise to being king, all, all these accomplishments. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, what, what does he list? He's, he lists how, how much he sinned along the way. It, ever since birth, it's like my life has been a nonstop parade of sin and sin and more sin. He says, God, the law of God is this blinding, searching spotlight that comes in and highlights every area of my life. You've seen those videos of people who go into hotel rooms with those UV lights. Might look pretty clean, but you get that UV light and you never ever want to go into a hotel room for the rest of your life because you see the real sin, the real germs that are there. And it's disgusting. And that's what David, he's getting this perspective on his life. He says, I'm looking at every foul deed I've ever done and it is gross and I want it off of me and I want it out of me. I want it removed. Speaking of cleaning, a while back, I went with some church friends, and we were asked to go to the, the apartment of a housebound lady, and she just never left her home, and they said, she needs help to clean her house. Can you go there? She said, sure. And so we went in there, and when we stepped into that apartment, we wanted to step right back out. The smell that hit us was so foul, and it was so repugnant, we didn't know how she could honestly breathe. The whole place was one of those like the hoarder's worst nightmares kind of place. Piles of dirty laundry, mold growing in corners. We went in, I swear to you, cockroaches crawling all over the kitchen. And we just, we buckled down and we started cleaning. And we we had to do it in a graceful way, but we were showing her bit by bit how dirty her place was and how clean it could be in contrast that we didn't just surface level clean. We had a deep clean. We had to get out the bleach. We had to go full-fledged on that apartment to make it as clean as possible. That's what I think of when I see David begging God to come into his life and scrub out the sin that lurks in the most secret places that nobody else could see. But he's like, I still know it's there. You shine that UV light, God, get it in there, see that sin, drag it out. He doesn't want any traces of a sin left behind. He wants it all gone. He's asking God to wash him so thoroughly like you would take a mud-splattered, BO-laden shirt and you would throw it in the wash and then you would turn it on hot water, high-intensity cycle, and maybe two or three times around. That's the kind of washing David wants for God to do to his life. He's inviting God in to do that. But what David didn't understand back then was the high cost of the forgiveness and the deep cleaning that he's asking for here in Psalm 51. He says, God, come in and clean my life. But what's the cost of that going to be? When he's begging God to wipe his record clean, that would only become possible through what Christ would do for him. Colossians 2 tells us that having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, which condemned us, God took it away and he nailed it to the cross. That's the price of being deep clean. Being deep clean isn't comfortable, it's not enjoyable when we're going through that process, by the way. When you really start to get serious about getting that sin out of your life, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be asking God to, sh- to really open your eyes and show you how filthy you are on the inside. And it might be really uncomfortable having to make some of those life choices. 
to stop, stop sinning, to, to repent, to be really uncomfortable with your sin. But you know, at the end of that journey, it's so satisfying when all those stains and the filth and the guilt is out. And you look back and it's just clean. I love seeing a clean room. But I love more having a clean heart. The only way we can get that deep cleaning is to be really transparent with God. We're asking Him to forgive our sins. Don't hold back. Don't hide what you've done for Him. Don't do that surface level cleaning. In contrast, pray to God. That's a dangerous prayer, but pray. Say, God, dredge out every last one of my sins. Get them out into the light so I can see them and I can say sorry for each and every one of them. Let's deal with it right now. Don't leave that off for another week. So if we hold Psalm up as a template for how we say sorry to God, then there are really only two things you need to remember when you leave today. I'm going to give you those two things right now. You can forget the rest of the sermon. Justin and I, what did he preach on today? I don't know, something about cockroaches and... and Clean, he, got, he was complaining a lot about cleaning his house. I don't know. The two things I want you to remember are this. Removal and renewal. Remo- say it with me. Removal and renewal. Okay. Removal and renewal. God asked, or David asked God to remove his sins. Take away that bad stuff. But then he asked for God to replace that with something really positive. To renew in him a pure heart. See, he doesn't just want the sin gone. He says, in that absence, I want something good to be put in place. One of the phrases that really bugs me, and you, you want to bug me? Come up to me and say, Pastor Justin, people don't really change. I hate hearing that. I don't know why people say that. People don't really change. That is ridiculous. That is a lie. That is false. I do not understand the, the concept behind it. Um, there's a Disney movie, Frozen. I'm sure every kid in the universe has seen this movie. And in that movie, these trolls are singing a song, and they're like, um, they sing, we're not saying you can change him because people don't really change. And I went, uh, no, no. Because I've never met somebody who's the same at age 10 that they are at 20 and then they are at 30. We grow, we mature, we develop, and we change. And sometimes that change comes about because of our life experiences. Sometimes that change comes about because of our decisions. And sometimes because God helps us to change. If we have a heart that's inclined to sin, as David said, we've been sinning since our very birth, we can't just say, well, people don't really change. I guess I'll just be sinning till death. No, no. We absolutely need to change. We need a change of direction here. That's why I love David's huge request here. He puts it right out. He says, God, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't just, don't just remove, but renew. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. He knows that David can't create. You can't create your own pure heart. You can't do that. You can't go home today and say, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to create a pure heart. Only God can do that. The Creator can create. And David, no doubt, in verse 11 here, if you're reading this, he says, cast me not away. And he's thinking about a very specific example in his life. And that's of King Saul. You might remember, King Saul had the Holy Spirit dwelling on him. That's not something all the believers had in the Old Testament. But once in a while, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody to accomplish great things through that person. And God gave King Saul the Holy Spirit. 
But King Saul kept sinning against God over and over and over again. And finally God said, that's it. I'm removing the Holy Spirit away from you. I'm taking my presence away from you, King Saul. And I'm giving it to David instead. And David says, he's, he's remembering that life lesson of Saul when he looks at the sin of his own life. And his sin is no any more, is any less grievous than what Saul did. He has murdered and he's cheated and he has done horrible, despicable things against God. He says, God, please don't take your spirit away from me. Now, that's not something we have to worry about as Christians. It doesn't happen to us. John 10 tells us, Jesus, straight from his lips, says, I give them eternal life, and nobody can snatch them from my hand. Our king says, you guys can sin, and, and if you're a believer, you can't, I can't take that presence away from you. That's not something that will happen. But that doesn't mean we don't need a pure heart. We still need to have that pure heart. We need that renewal in our lives. Once the guilt's taken away, what do we replace it with? And David here wants a heart that beats for God more than it beats for himself, more than it beats for sin. He wants a heart that desires the same things that God desires. He says, God, remind me of the joy of my salvation. Why I'm so excited to be one of your followers. Why this new life in you is better than the life I used to have in sin. Remind me every day, God. I need to be reminded that. We're so good at forgetting things. We need to be reminded every single day of the joy of our salvation. After this, David's great desire, after he's been, had that sin removed and he's had his heart renewed, he has this great desire to go out and to sing of God's righteousness, to praise the Lord, to give God a desirable inner sacrifice. Deliverance from sin. When you've been delivered from something serious, you want to tell everybody about it. When you've gone through some major, maybe a major health issue in your life, and you come out on the other end of that, you want to tell people, oh my goodness, look at what I got through. It's amazing. When you get through something like this, deliverance from sin leads to public acts of praise and testimony. We don't just keep it to ourselves that God has forgiven us. We go out and say, guys, God forgave me. He can forgive you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. David has this desire. He's bubbling over. He wants to teach others how to say sorry to God so that they can get this new life too. That's what Psalm 51 is all about. He could have prayed this to himself to God. That would have been fine. But he puts it down in the Bible to share with us so that we can learn how to say sorry to God. He's like, I kind of picture him as one of those former convicts that goes around to the schools and, you know, tells them, like, don't, don't be like me. You know, don't, don't make these same mistakes I do. You don't want to go through that. Say sorry right now. Deal with the sin right now. Get it out of your life. This restoration after sin is something we should all desire for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I think why it's just such a shame of the church that when we see somebody else sinning, there's that temptation to either condemn them or to fall into the same sin that they're in. The Bible preaches against both. Instead, in Galatians 6.1, it tells us we need to have a different course of action. <clears throat> when it says, if somebody is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Do you hear that? Please hear that. Restore that person gently. 
We should have a, a heart and a desire to see that person come back to God. And the only way that we can do that in their lives is to be gentle with them. Point out their sin, but do it in a gentle way, and non, in a way that you say, listen, I'm a sinner too. I mess up too. I'm not coming at you at a point where I'm holier than thou. I'm right down here with you. But listen, I found God. I, I've been restored to God. And you need that restoration too. When somebody's criticizing your sin, they're putting you down, you're not really going to repent. But a gentle reminder about the God who loved us, who saved us, and against whom we're sinning, I think is far more effective to getting hearts to turn around and to repent as David did. The question isn't whether we're going to fail and we're going to sin against God in deeply offensive ways. We have, we are, and we will. We have done that. The question is if we're willing to say sorry in a way that asks for God's mercy, that asks Him to come in and deep clean our lives in a way that we're not able to, and for Him to come in and create in us a pure heart a heart that doesn't have room for sin, a heart that beats for God every day, delights in the things he delights in. That's how we say sorry to God. That's the way David said sorry to God. How will you say sorry to God this week? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, all of us have sinned, and we have sinned against you. Lord, when that sin is not brought to you, it weighs upon us. It weighs us down with guilt. We know things aren't right, and we might try to justify it for a while, rationalize it away, ignore it, but sooner or later we need to deal with it. Lord, when that happens, we need to come to you and ask you to come in, remove that sin, renew our hearts. Lord, that's what we pray for today. Make us right before you, Lord. Make us right in a way that only you can. And all God's people said, Amen. Mark, thank you for joining us and leading us in worship today. Brothers and sisters, I hope this is not the last time we meet in person for a while. But if it is, we'll still be together in spirit. We will worship our Lord in truth. And we will still be here after this crisis has finished. So let's, uh, let's say our benediction today. And remember, we worship a great God, and he has not left you right now. From the book of Revelation, to him who loves us <clears throat> and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you again for listening. It is our sincere prayer that today's message has brought you closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We welcome you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. You can also audio stream our full service. Details can be found at our website. Our church is fully wheelchair accessible and loop enabled for the hearing impaired. For a full schedule of activities and more information on our beliefs, visit our website at www knoxepc.com or call our church office at 716-873-2423.